0: meet with you if uh, you're up for it Um, this semester we have settled into the gospel of john chapters 13 to 17 often called the farewell discourse we're calling it jesus last lecture he's preparing his closest followers for his departure and for what will be for them a new experience they're going to have a relationship with jesus largely defined by his absence he's not going to be with them anymore And he's trying to help them think through what that's going to look like. And he's trying to comfort them. And the comfort he offers them today in our text is that of a home. He offers the comfort of home. Now, that word itself is powerful and potentially evocative. And as many different people are in the room there may be that many different conceptions of home here uh, because it's such an important thing for us so i say home and some of you immediately are thinking like yes i'm a little homesick i can't wait i'm going home soon i know i'm known there and i'm loved and i'll always be welcome and so home is this wonderful place for you Uh, for some of you it's quite possible that home is it's complicated Uh, maybe there are good memories there but maybe there are terrible painful memories there maybe there are hurts there, resentment maybe disappointment maybe you are a disappointment to people in your home and that makes it hard to go home so maybe it's complicated and for some of you, maybe you're like me you're not quite sure where home is anymore Uh, you go back and you know the place I used to live. is not the place where my family lives. And the people I used to live with, well, they're not all there anymore. Maybe your parents are divorced or one of them has died. And you don't know where home is. That's my experience now. And uh, so that raises the question. Uh, and I think it raises the question in our text. It's clear that Jesus has an idea where home is and it's supposed to be a comfort to these men. Is it a comfort to us? Do we understand what Jesus offers and is it a comfort to us? So, our text is chapter 13, verse 36 through 14 11. I'm going to read and you can follow along up there. Simon, this is going back a little bit to last week, but just sort of picking up the story. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, "'Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way?' And Jesus said to him, "'I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him, and you have seen him.'" Philip said to him, "'Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us.'" And Jesus said to him, "'Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip?' "'Whoever has seen me has seen the Father.'" How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. The Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Great Father, we thank you uh, for this word. I thank you for these students who have gathered tonight. We pray you would be kind sharpen hearts and sharpen minds and soften hearts and show us glorious things in your law. Show us yourself. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. I've shared this story like probably four times in 10 years um, because it's so good. So if you've heard this once or twice before, I'm not sorry. Um, On April 24th, 1916, 22 men near the point of freezing sat huddled together, clinging for life on the inhospitable shore of Elephant Island. If you don't know where that is, it is about as far south as you can go. And they watched as six of their companions rode off through the treacherous ice flows of uh, the South Antarctic Ocean. Uh, They they had almost no provisions. No one had ever inhabited this island. uh, And there was no reason to think that they could do so either. And as all their companions departed, uh, their leader, Ernest Shackleton, who'd led this expedition uh, comforted them with the promise that he would return and they should be prepared every day for their eventual rescue that was an absolutely ridiculous promise they were thousands of miles from anything remotely resembling civilization Uh, Shackleton was a great man a great explorer But it was just him and five men in a very, very small, uncovered boat in the winter in a wild, uncharted ocean. That crew would have to find their way back to some kind of civilization, organize a rescue party, come all the way back to Elephant Island, and do it before everyone froze to death or starved to death. And then still have to get everyone home. Neither one of these groups, the men in the boat or the men on the shore stood much of a chance for survival of seeing each other again of ever getting home so i ask two questions that promise shackleton made as he left in a boat the promise of return and rescue would that comfort you thinking about the situation the conditions would that provide any comfort at all And secondly, what would you need to know about Shackleton to actually believe him? To actually believe that this crazy promise he makes is possible, can be done. What would you need to know about him? I ask those questions because that is not unlike what's going on here. Jesus is leaving, and his men cannot come with him. And he promises to return and bring them home. And the home he's speaking of is a heavenly home. The big picture here, of course, is his leaving is this ignominious, gruesome, humiliating death on the cross. He's already predicted he's going to die in this way. What reason do they have to think that someone who dies on the cross has access to heaven and can go there and bring them back? It's the same two questions. Does Jesus promise that he's going to return and bring them home? Bring you home? To a place called heaven. Is that comforting to you at all? Is it any sort of comfort to you? And then secondly, like the first time, what would you need to know about Jesus in order to actually believe Him? What would you need to know about Jesus in order to actually believe Him? Our text here, based on Jesus' words, is, is telling us that there is a true home waiting for those that trust in Jesus. And uh, for the first time this semester, I'm adequately organized enough. I always am organized here. But I was organized like 20 minutes earlier, which means uh, we have outlines. If you're a note taker, we have outlines up there if you'd like one. But here's the outline uh, if you're taking notes or uh, just skeptical that I'm not organized. Here you go. Here's your outline. Uh, A place called home, homecoming, and a home you can believe in. Okay? So let's start with a place called home. And uh, right on the heels of Jesus predicting Peter's failure and, uh, and the heartbreak of that, and it really is right on the heels. Like you know, there, Jesus didn't speak in chapter divisions. They didn't exist. He was just talking. And, uh, and John, that means he predicts Peter's failure. The rooster will crow three times before he deny me, and then immediately... Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, how does that make sense? Of course, he's going to be troubled. They're all going to be troubled. He's going to die this terrible death. There's a traitor who's betrayed Jesus. One of them is going to deny him. They're going to be troubled. But what I think Jesus is telling them is something like, Be troubled. But don't stay troubled. There should be something that provides comfort in your trouble. And he speaks of a home, a place called home. It's a heavenly one. You see that in verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. And uh, we're talking about heaven here. Uh, Jesus is going to provide a fuller answer over a couple chapters why these men should take comfort. But his first answer is a place called home. And this reality that uh, that the Father has a place with many rooms in it. This place called heaven. And the Bible has more to say about heaven than you might think, but less than some people believe. Um, so, a lot of stuff you think about heaven is probably not in the Bible. Um, but it does tell us a couple things. The heaven's a place of reversal, where all the broken, bad things come untrue. That's largely what Revelation tells us. All the tears wiped away, all the griefs, all the griefs and wounds healed, all the scars restored, that things are returned to the way they're supposed to be. But what we see here, predominantly in this text, is that heaven is spacious and gracious. There's many rooms, many of them. And that's good news for someone like Peter, who's just heard, you're going to deny me publicly a couple times. You are going to, you as the leader of my men, you're going to fail me. And right on the heels of hearing that, I can imagine Peter hearing this. In my father's house are many rooms. And Peter thinking... Enough for me, too? Even people like me? The, the only reason there's any rooms is because God is gracious. No one deserves to be there. This highlights the reality that heaven is spacious and gracious. And that all of His people will be there. There's, no one will be forgotten. That's His own. And then secondly, we see that this is a family home. It's the Father's house, verse 2. and verse 3, Jesus says, "...I will come and bring you to Myself." And then again in verse 6. Uh, I, will, I will bring you to the Father. We, we come to the Father. And uh, when Jesus here is speaking about heaven, what He's largely speaking about is relationships. The Father's house, me and my Father. So uh, He's talking about family. That the disciples will be reunited with Jesus, and Jesus will be reunited with His Father, and everyone will meet everyone. And what we have is a family reunion. And when you take a spacious house and combine it with a family that loves each other, what you have... Is a place called home. It's home. Now, again, I alluded at the very beginning of our time together that uh, we have particularly, probably very different experiences of home and what that means. And uh, for some of you, uh, maybe like Matt Berninger from the, the National. This is a line from one of his songs. I never thought about love when I thought about home. He sings that. I never thought about love when I thought about home. I don't know what kind of experience he had, but uh, but maybe that's your experience too. You're like, ah, it's supposed to be that way, but it never was. But whether home was good or bad, I think this text and the Bible and our lives show us, reveal to us, that we all have a deep longing for home, a deep longing for home. Uh, these men are about to be in some ways homeless. They've left their home to follow Jesus. Jesus is leaving. Where are we supposed to go now? And Jesus' answer is a home. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a home for you. And uh, you know, part of the reason I think we think so little about heaven, we think so, frankly, as our culture, even Christians, we think so little about heaven, uh, is because we are unaware of how much we actually long for home. I think we long for home all the time, we're just very unaware of it, and we're constantly stuffing our longing for home with anything we can to fill that pit and make that ache go away. this beautiful book written about 100 years ago called The Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham. It really is beautiful. It's a great book. It's probably one of the best books about friendship I've ever read. So if you want to read a book about friendship and still be amused by beautiful writing, I recommend The Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham. Uh, There's a scene there about halfway through the book where uh, these two friends are hiking through the countryside, Mole and Rat. Mole has left home and moved in with Rat. And our little story just sort of finds them walking uh, through the middle of nowhere. And I'm just going to read a passage from the book. Rat, walking a little ways ahead, eyes fixed on the road in front of him, did not notice the poor mole when the summons reached him and took him like an electric shock. It was one of those mysterious calls that suddenly reached mole in the darkness and that made him tingle through and through with a familiar appeal. Even while he could not clearly remember what it was, Mole stopped dead in his tracks. Home. That was what they meant. Those invisible little hands pulling and tugging all one way. It must be quite close by. His old home he had hurriedly forsaken and never saw it again. And now it was sending out its scouts to capture him and bring him back. The call was clear. The summons was plain. He must obey it instantly and go. So he he starts calling for Rat. He's trying to get his friend to stop. But Rat is head down, march ahead, not paying attention. And Mole is desperately trying to get him to stop so they can go home, to his home. And he fails to do so. Up the story, poor mole stands alone in the road, his heart torn asunder. A big sob gathering somewhere low down inside of him, and he dares not stay any longer. And with a wrench that tore his very heartstrings, he set his face down down the road and followed the rat with faint little smells still dogging his retreating nose, reproaching him for his callous forgetfulness. He catches up with rat. He's so sullen, they take a break. And the mole subsides forlornly on a tree stump and tries to control himself. For he feels it surely coming. That sob he had long fought with, so long refused to be beaten and up and up. It forced its way to the air and then another and another. I hate this part of the story. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful, but it's sad. Um, now that he knew it was all over and he had lost what he could hardly be said to have found. So that, that part's really great. So He's so good with words. Uh, now that he knew it was all over, and he had lost what he could hardly be said to have found. Um, so here we find Mole longing for home, so close, tantalizing, he senses it and it slips through his fingers. And I think that's frankly uh, such a beautiful passage because I think Kenneth Graham writing to children captures our experience. We are desperately longing and aching for home and it often seems so close and, we, and it's never quite what it's supposed to be. So what are the summons and the whisperings and the aches for home in your life? And that may actually require you to stop and think and do some honest self-assessment. Uh, some of you right now are terribly homesick, and it's right there on the surface. The, the sobs are like right here, and you just want to go home. That's, that's fine. That's great. Um, some of you perhaps have never had a home that you actually felt like you could miss. You're glad not to be there. And, uh, you know, in, in that case, I might say, you probably have the right to be a little angry, and you should mourn for that loss. Um, but most of us, I think, all the time, are seeking home and trying to make one, and we do it in all kinds of ways. We do it in relationships, either by the number and the intimacy with many, or sometimes with just one. Just one, this person will be my home, or success, a place where we know we are loved and we belong. That's what we're looking for. Now, some of you, of course, think you know better and you've dismissed all this cynically. It's, Never going to have this. But I'm fairly convinced that deep down, all of us long for this experience, this place of belonging, this home where we're loved and known, where things are the way they're supposed to be. Uh, see, uh, by the way, I didn't say this at the beginning. I should say it right now. In this sermon, the first point's really, really long, and the last two are really, really short. Okay, so um, here you go. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, 60 years ago, in writing about this longing for home, wrote this. And speaking of this desire for our far-off country, which we find in ourselves, I find, I feel I am almost committing an indecency. I am trying, and that's what I'm doing right now too, I am trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you. The secret which hurts so much that you take revenge on it by calling it names, like nostalgia, and romanticism, and adolescence. The secret which pierces with such sweetness that when in a very intimate conversation the mention of it becomes imminent, we get awkward. We affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we can't hide, that we can't tell, though we want to do both. We cannot tell it because it's a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our existence. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it, and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty, and to identify it with certain moments in our past. But this is a cheat. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our past, are the good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols. They break our hearts. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we've not found, the echo of a tune we've not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. I know that is more philosophical and worthy than some of you are used to reading, perhaps. Lewis is saying, "...the whole world is structured with such beauty." That uh, we often think the beauty we want is in those things. But we're never ultimately satisfied in those things. we put our, all our hopes on those things. And they never quite satisfy. Because those are but scent of a flower and news from a country that we've never been to. They point to an ultimate home. And in another place, he wrote, a little more succinctly, for you engineers. If we find ourselves with a desire, this is almost a syllogism, it probably is actually, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is we were made for another world. And this is where Lewis is leading us. That we long and ache for so much in life. Out of school, out of relationships, out of friendships. Because we were made for another world. We were. If you read the Bible, it's exactly what it tells us. And I'm not just talking about heaven. The way the world was supposed to be in the beginning. We were made for that. A world where everything worked perfectly. Where relationships were fulfilling. And work was great and fulfilling. And we're frustrated now because things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And we, we experience, it's what my, one of my professors called, echoes of Eden all the time. The way things are supposed to be. And it breaks our heart. But Jesus says... You find these things in a home. It's still out there. It's still out there. It's in the home that he, that he offers us. And so we long for a home, and I think we have reason to believe that Jesus can deliver it. Okay? These last two points took about 5-10 minutes. First, uh, we see in Jesus a homecoming. If, if, even if there's a home, we have to ask ourselves a question, even if there is a heaven, uh, is there a way to get there? How do we know we can actually get there in any way? And uh, Jesus here is telling his men, trying to reassure him them, there is a heaven, and I will get you there. And there's two ways that he uh, goes about trying to convince them of us, that heaven has come down and heaven will go back. But look at the way he starts in verse 4. After telling them that there is a heaven, and he will take them there, and they know the way, uh, Thomas in verse 5 says, um, know the way, I, we don't even know where you're going. We, we, we're completely in the dark. We're clueless. We don't know where we're going. How can we possibly know the way to get there? And then Jesus in verse 6 somewhat famously says, I am the way. And no one comes home to the Father unless they come through me. And then verse 7, he backs it up. If you had known me, you would have known the Father. Verse 9, wait, wait. You've been with me so long and you still don't know me? Over and over, Jesus is telling them, you know the way, even if you don't know the way. This is one of those deals where you may not know that you know something. And that's what's going on with the disciples. They don't know what they know. They know Jesus, and therefore they know the way. That's what he's trying to tell them. And what Jesus here is saying is that there's been a home invasion. There's been a home invasion. Jesus in verse 10 says, listen, look, don't you know, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The Father dwells in me. And what Jesus is saying here is that He and the Father are eternally, inseparably connected. In in fancy theological speech, we would say, one God, three persons. That's not very fancy. That's just the way we talk about the Trinity. One God, three persons. They are forever inseparable. They are locked in. And so what that means is, in the human person of Jesus... God dwelt there. It's the exact language that, that Jesus uses. He, he dwelt. Doesn't he know he dwells in me? In the human person of Jesus, God resided. Heaven, in other words, in the person of Jesus, invaded the earth. There was a home invasion. If heaven's home, home invaded earth in the person of Jesus. Heaven came down here. And so Jesus can say in verse 9, Hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Gentlemen, if you've been with me for three years, if you've seen me, you have seen God. Because there's been a home invasion. Heaven's come down in the flesh. Here I am. So, frankly, I mean, some of you may be curious what heaven's like. And the best answer is Jesus. Really, if, if it's the Father's home... And Jesus and the Father are joined together, thick as thieves forever. If you don't know what heaven's like, Jesus. Study Jesus. There's this home invasion. There's also reservations and transportation. Jesus says in verse 3, Hey, if I go, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back and take you to myself. You put that all together, what it looks like then is Jesus handling Every bit of the journey. Every bit of the trip home. For his people, those who trust in him, he takes care of the preparations, the reservations, the transportations, and and he's with you the whole time. He accompanies you the whole way. That's what he's saying. I'm going to go fix it up. I've got a place for you. Your reservation's held. I'll come back and get you. I'll take you with me. That's what it means that he's the way. He is the way every bit of the way. What, What did you do there? Peter. And if Peter understands what Jesus tells him at the end of 13, Peter should say, the good news is, I didn't have to do anything, because the things I did were not good. It's by grace that He is my way, every bit of the way. And so Jesus says, a couple places here, to His followers, and says it to us, I'm the way. And then. You need to believe that. He calls them to believe in verse 1. He calls them to believe in verse 11. And for some of you, this is too good to be true. Uh, And and by that I mean like, uh, I like to believe this stuff. I sort of think I like Jesus. I frankly though still might be a crass materialist. I'm not sure there's really an afterlife. If there is, I'm not really sure it's as good as what you say. For some of you, this might be too good. For some of you, this might be too bad. Maybe you like Jesus, but you're offended by this claim that He's the only way. You have a hard time imagining Him say this. Perhaps, like many, most, you believe in the old fashioned American way of going to heaven, which is just die. That's the American way. Of That's what Americans believe how you go to heaven. You just die. You die, you go to heaven. And uh, Jesus says, I'm the way. It's me. I am the way home. And I, I will get you all the way there. Um, but for those of you who are like Peter, or later will come to realize, as Peter will realize, I, uh, I've known the Lord well, and He's been really good to me. And what I've learned about myself over the years is I'm not, I'm not the person I should be. And that's what Peter has to learn about himself. That's why we read it. He thinks he's great. He's the best in his class, and he will fail his Lord. When we come to realize that we have a good Lord in Jesus, and we're going to fail him, then we come to realize, there's a heaven, the only way I'm going to get there is if it's gracious and spacious. Lots of room, and I get in by grace, because Jesus handles it every bit of the way. So. The last question I have to ask, and we have to answer is, uh, can you actually believe in a home like this? That a place like this exists? And, And why should you? And so I want you to consider, all of us, consider if this is a home that you can believe in. The believability of all of this, that there is a heaven, and that Jesus can get you there, in my mind, all boils down to two words in this text. There's lots of words in this text. Extra credit. One of you guys can count all the words. Um, I don't know what I'll give you. I'll give you a brownie. (laughs) Um, uh, I, I think the believability, the plausibility, that there is a heaven, and Jesus can actually get us there every step of the way. He takes care of it all. Boils down to two words. Anybody know what they are? I'd be really impressed. This would be extra, extra credit. Okay. Uh, I, I realize asking in a large group setting is probably not the best way to elicit a real answer. But if you want to text me your answer, then uh let you know. Uh, in verse 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, he also says, and the truth and the life. Okay? And we, we often, especially now, seize on that one word, the way, and some of us, like I've done saying, there's a way! That's great! Because I didn't think there was going to be any way. And others seize on it as how can you possibly say it's the only way? Uh, but what really matters is whether or not Jesus is the truth and the life. If he's not the truth and the life, then he's not the way. <laughs> Let me explain. Jesus in verse 10, he claims to be the truth. And verse 10 says, hey guys, because they're having trouble following, they're having trouble seeing it. And he says, listen, the the words I say, verse 10, the words I say, I don't speak on my own authority. No, no, it's the Father speaking through me. I I do His will. I speak His words. He said this over and over in John. I don't speak on my own authority. I don't make stuff up. When I speak, it's God speaking. And in verse 9 he'll say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now if this is true, then Jesus is claiming to be the perfect revelation from God he's claiming to be the true truth if what Jesus is saying if he is truth if Jesus is truth he cannot be mistaken okay if he is truth he can't be wrong he can't be mistaken that means he's trustworthy you can trust him you can trust what he says that there's a heaven and he's the whole way there um, but we also need to know that he's life. And, uh, and John has been claiming this since the very beginning. Four verses into the book, John says, In Him, in Jesus, was life. And later in, a, in another letter, the same John writes, He is the true God and the eternal life. He puts them both there. Truth and life again. And what Jesus claims and what John is claiming about Jesus is, This is the eternal Son of God, come in the flesh, the creator, giver, and sustainer of life who survives death and comes out the backside. If Jesus is life, he cannot be stopped by death. I mean, it stops everyone else, it stops every pretender. But if Jesus is truth, he can't be wrong. And if he's life, he can't be stopped by death. If those two things are true, these truth and he's life, then he's the way. Why doubt? Jesus recognizes how hard this is. He's got men who've been with him for three years and they don't get it. So if if you're struggling and saying, I hear what you're saying, it's still hard hard to swallow, or some of you are saying, Listen, I'm a Christian and I I s I don't think about heaven nearly enough and I'm struggling too. Listen to the invitation Jesus gives here in verses ten and eleven. Hear my words. If you can't believe, see the things I've done. Consider the works. Say the words, say the works and wrestle with whether or not these things I say and these things are do aren't truth in life.'t aren't more aren't full of truth in life in ways that surpass everything else. See if there's not proof in the person of Jesus that God has invaded the earth. That there's been a home invasion. And if, if you are a Christian, then do the same thing. Consider that Jesus is the truth and the life. That He can't be wrong, and that He can't be stopped, and therefore He can never forsake you, and His love is always dependable, and you have every reason to trust Him. Every reason to trust Him. He has the truth and the life. So on August 30th, 1916, the Yelcho, and it's just a a terrible-sounding name for a boat, the Yelcho. Anyway, uh, it's this dinged-up Chilean tugboat, uh, approaches Elephant Isle. And it finds 22 men sitting on the beach expecting their arrival. All alive, all waiting, bags packed, ready to go. Every day, since Shackleton's leaving. Because they believed Shackleton's promise. Because they believed Shackleton. They knew what kind of man he was. And Shackleton and his men, for their part, risked their lives on on the open sea, survived a hurricane in an open boat on the ocean, found a mountain that they thought no one inhabited, an island climbed a mountain that no one climbed ever before and no one else ever did again until 1955. And that man in 1955, after he'd done it, said, I don't know how those men did it, except that they had to. They did all that in order to bring these men home. Jesus didn't have to, he chose to. He could have chosen not to. But to get us home, To get us back to the Father, He chose to. He chose to make a way. As the truth and the life, He didn't have to risk His life. He had to give His life. He had to lay down His life. And in doing that, He made a way. He made a way all the way home for us. He went through death and out death's back door in order to bring all of us home. And I want you to think about that home. I'm not a pie-in-the-sky, think about heaven every day kind of person. But I, I need you to grasp this reality. If you're seeking all that you long for in home, in heaven, on this earth, you will be continually disappointed. You will put a heaven's load worth of expectations on your earthly relationships and success. And you will burn them out, and you will crush them under the weight, and you will be brokenhearted. Instead, know that you have a home and a father that loves you, and that will allow you to love those people and enjoy your job and let them be the things they're supposed to be. But know that you have a home and a Lord that will take you all the way there. Let's pray. Great Lord Jesus.